Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's super exciting to be with you for a bunch of reasons. Um, I'm really excited to go through a new sermon series, which is on Nehemiah. Here we are. And you're all like, yes, Nehemiah. Yay. Woo! Let's hear it for Nehemiah. Exactly. Um, and then also, uh, it's my son's first Sunday. It's his first time coming. So finally, he's decided to come to church. And so we're really grateful. Uh, we were worried for a while. Uh, but here he is, he's, he's come. Uh, so that's super exciting. Um, okay. Nehemiah, I'm hoping uh, that we, we're not all uh, like Old Testament experts, because otherwise this, uh, this morning might be a little bit kind of low for us. Um, it's, it's an Old Testament book, and it's like sort of sandwiched in the middle between lots of other books and it comes in a really interesting period of Old Testament history and uh, I'm going to make some assumptions that not everyone um, is like fully got a grasp on where it is and we are really excited. Uh, Josh and I, we've been praying and, and thinking and reading around and thinking where's next for us? We'd, we, we absolutely love going through John's gospel and seeing the real Jesus. Uh, we've done uh, a little five-week series on our kind of values and the things that we as a church hold um, at, at, like as our DNA at our core, the things that we value. And so what's next for us? And uh, we felt really drawn to um, the story of, uh, of, of two guys, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're going to focus in and hone in on um, the sort of second part of the story, which is, in our Bibles, the book of Nehemiah. Um, and, and what I want to do today is set the scene. What I want to do today is, like, paint the backstory. We're not even going to look at the book, Nehemiah. Spoilers. Um, sorry, <laughs> so don't don't turn there in your Bibles. Um, we're gonna we're gonna jump around a little bit, and we're gonna look at um, the backstory, really, how things got to where they were. And I also want to address some questions that I had thinking about um, where should we go and this book Nehemiah. And I kind of thought like about the Old Testament and about Nehemiah. Why do we do that? So this morning, um, we've got. Three questions really to answer. If I press it, okay. Why the Old Testament? Why the book in Nehemiah? And, and where are we? Where is this book in the, the overall story? What, where does it fit in with um, the whole Bible story? So that's what we're going to do today. Um, just to say, next Sunday, we're going to do something a bit different, something we've never done before. Uh, I, I know, you guys. Oh. Uh, we're going uh, to read through the book of Nehemiah together as a church. We're going to have uh, some people come up and read it out loud, and we're going to follow along with our Bibles. So we're making up for the fact that we're not reading the text this week by reading all of the text <laughs> next week. It takes about 35 minutes, but we're, we're going to cut out outrageously some parts. And I know... Don't get me started. It's, there's a lot of names in Nehemiah. There's a lot of names. And uh, the names are repeated uh, at least twice. And then there's another group of names at a later point. And then there's a bit about what everyone gave. And there's a bit about what everyone built. And it's really fascinating. And it's so important. Um, but if we're going to read the whole book uh, and not be here for like six hours, we need to cut something out. And we made a decision. So um, next week, 
we're going to read through the book of Nehemiah. And I'm just so excited. Um, the Bible gives us a promise about what happens when we read out scripture. Paul says, don't neglect the reading of scriptures publicly to Timothy. He's, he, he says, when you meet together, make sure you read it. The reason is, this is God's word, not what I bring, right? Not not the sermon, this is God's word. This is his word to us. And all we're doing on a Sunday really is, is trying to like lift it up and say, this is amazing and here's why. But it, this is the point. And so we want to read it next week. And I, we believe in faith that God's going to do something amazing as we read through just simply the Bible story, just as we read simply through Nehemiah. So that's what we're going to do next week. But... Um, a little disclaimer for me, Nehemiah is actually part two of a bigger book called Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra is the first installment. Um, think of it like a sequel uh, or, or like part one, part two. In fact, originally, they were both written on the same scroll. So uh, in the Old Testament, the Jews would bring out the scrolls. They'd bring out the scroll of Ezra, Nehemiah. So it's good for us to start thinking about them as one book. Um, but again, we just don't have the time to go through uh, both books. Um, so we've broken up the book of Nehemiah uh, for the time that we've got up until Christmas uh, so that we can go through it. And there's absolutely going to be flashbacks. You know, like in TV episodes where uh, I remember Lost. Did anyone ever watch Lost? And then it made no sense until suddenly they started doing flashbacks. Uh, that's going to happen. We're going to have little flashbacks into Ezra. Um, but next Sunday, we're reading Nehemiah. Can I give you some homework? Can you read? I know, it's outrageous. Can you read Ezra between now and then? It takes 31 minutes if you're a Liverpudlian reading out loud quite fast. Um, so give it a go. Read Ezra through. You can read it as a family. You can read it in parts in the morning. You can read it at small group. You can read it, meet up with someone for a coffee and, and read through the book of Ezra. It won't take that long. Uh, and what will happen is next week when we read through Nehemiah, it will be like the next part of the story. It will all fit together. So that's what's happening uh, next week. Uh, this week, we're going to address these questions. So first question is, why the Old Testament? Oh, we're cutting off the ends of my slides here. Oh, okay. I hope you don't mind if I drink some coffee. Um, our new baby boy is uh, not sleeping much at night, so neither are we. How unusual. How unusual. All night, I heard, Wendy. Um, so, speaking of which, here he is, Harry Edward Anwell Evans. Uh, and as you can see, he's quite adorable. Uh, <laughs> Harry is the name we gave him because we quite liked it. Uh, but Edward is Chloe's grandfather's middle name. So it's this link to Chloe's grandfather. We really wanted to have something of her family in there so that he can think and reflect and look back to uh, his mum's history. Mum, tell me stories about my great-granddad, who I share the middle name with. Anwil uh, is actually a hereditary name that I have. Um, for years, like centuries down the line, Anwil has been passed down um, in my family. I'm not quite sure why. Um, unfortunately, um, I have a cousin who's looked into our genealogy. Have you ever done uh, genealogy things? There's like Ancestry.com and there's Our History. There's all these websites. It's a big business. And um, so 
this is a connection to my family history and of course Evans is uh, my family name. And so our son has his own family history and we have a family history too. And we often get you know, this much, much money spent on kind of DNA testing and going back and looking down the line. But if we're Christians here today, if we're believers, then we've got a much richer uh, and more powerful story that we connect to. Uh, we have a family history. I like what the author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. He's just gone through uh, all of the saints. He's gone like Abraham, uh, Moses, like looking at the stories of all the different Old Testament saints and said, since we've got this great cloud of witnesses, since we've got all of these forefathers, these great heroes of the past that we can read their stories, let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. As we read through the story of the Old Testament, we learn about our family history. Ezra and Nehemiah aren't just random guys from 2,500 years ago. There are brothers in the faith. There are fathers in the faith. They're the part of our story. They're part of the journey that we got to, to get to here. So we can connect in with them. Uh, another reason, that was reason number one, why the Old Testament, if you didn't uh, notice. Uh, reason number two uh, for going through and looking at an Old Testament book um, is because the Bible, the whole Bible is God-breathed and profitable. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he's just um, given Timothy charge of this group of churches in Ephesus. It's not just one, it's lots of churches, and he's giving him the advice. He's, it's almost like his last letter to, um, the, you know, Paul's been mentoring Timothy, and he says, you know, don't neglect the reading of scripture. And he also says this, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Just stop there, because Paul isn't obviously talking about the New Testament. It hadn't been written then. He can only be referring to what we refer to as the Old Testament. And he's saying that to Timothy, Remember this Old Testament sacred writings that you've been reading. They will make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Like, this is enough for you to see who Jesus is and have your faith in him. To put your faith in Jesus is just the, like, you know, you can stop at the end of the Old Testament. That should be enough. It's like what, what Paul is saying. It's amazing. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Amazing promise to us as we go back into the Old Testament. Um, and finally, uh, the whole Bible points us to Jesus. Um, the story of, of, the, of the crucifixion, Jesus is in the tomb and the disciples have, have legged it. They've dispersed, they've gone there. They're not sticking around in Jerusalem anymore. They've just watched their leader, their master, be killed. So they're all off, scarpering uh, out, out to their own home, homes and villages. And two guys are, are on the way to um, Emmaus. 
and they're joined by a stranger and he doesn't seem to know anything about what just took place in Jerusalem. And they say to him, oh, don't you know about Jesus? How he, we thought that he was the one and, and then he's dead now. Like we, we put all our hopes and all our trust in him and now he's in a tomb somewhere. And Jesus says to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This to me is the most compelling um, reason for us to study and really like go into our Old Testament scriptures because Jesus says, if we do, we'll see him there. If we go back and look here, it's not just an interesting story about Abraham. It points to Jesus. You know, I remember someone explaining the Garden of Eden, how um, Adam and Eve, and they, they, uh, they fall, they take from the apple, and they try and cover up their shame with leaves. And the first thing God does is get some um, skins, some animal skins, and it covers up their shame. He, he covers their shame. He clothes them. But to get animal skins, you, you need to kill the animal. There's a sacrifice involved. So already, chapter two, chapter three, sorry, of the Bible, you have a story of God sacrificing to cover up the shame of his people. It's already a gospel picture of God doing the hard work, getting his hands dirty to cover up the shame of his people. Jesus is right the way through our Old Testament and we uh, have the joy and privilege and it's so exciting to hunt for him there, to find him there. So, that's the Old Testament. Why Ezra and Nehemiah? Why the book of Nehemiah and the story of these um, guys coming back and uh, rebuilding? Well, um, it's a direct prequel to the gospel. You know, the, the word gospel means good news, and we often think of the good news, if you ask me, Alad, what's the gospel? To give a definition of what the gospel was, I would say that Jesus died for our sins, that he paid the price for me when he died on the cross. But the gospel writers wrote the good news. It was much broader and much bigger than that idea. In fact, it was about something uh, huge. And it's in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's in the prophets Daniel and Isaiah, Hezekiah, Malachi, it, these 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 prophets and these writings that happen at the very end of the Jewish history, the Bible story there, it's in that context, and I'm, I'm going to explain it, I'm going to unpack it, but it's in that context that the word gospel gets its meaning, the good news, the proclamation. Spoilers, it's the proclamation that a king has come. It's a proclamation that there's a king coming, that he's here, that he's arrived, and that this is really good news. So it's a direct prequel to the gospel. Um, if we understand it, we understand this book, Nehemiah, it will help us understand the gospels. It will help us understand Paul's writings when he writes things to Jewish people. Understanding the Jewish history that they have is going to make that make more sense to us. Also, Nehemiah is a great book because Nehemiah is a fantastic leader. So we get principles for leadership that will impact and affect us in our workplaces, in our families, in, uh, in our friendship groups, here in church as well. And in different situations that we find ourselves, we will get great principles and great kind of ways of thinking about how we relate to one another.
As well, uh, in the story, there's plenty of opposition, uh, both from outside, uh, Nehemiah and his group of people, they're building the walls and there's people that don't like it. And then also inside, there's problems, there's infighting, there's difficulty, there's jealousy, there's fear. There's people that want to pack it all in and they're trying to get Nehemiah to stop doing what he's doing and because they're ruled by fear. Well, we have a world, it's, it's not different today. Anything that we're trying to do, especially if we're trying to, to build something that God's put on our heart, if we're trying to be true to the call and the vision that God has given us, well, we'll face opposition. We'll find fear and doubt creep into our hearts. We might have friends that we know, that we love, that we trust, give us terrible advice. And what do you do with that? How do you stand true to God's call in your life? How do you stand firm in what you believe is true, in what God has said, in what he's called you to? That's some of the challenges that Ezra and Nehemiah face. And finally, um, huge spoiler for this book, it doesn't go very well. Yeah, they try really hard uh, and they work really great together and they build some stuff and they, they, they're kind of really effective at building. Um, but, but the whole point of what the story is about what it's leading up to it doesn't get realized. It's really anticlimactic. And if you stick with us, by Christmas, you'll have heard and seen it so many times, um, the anticlimaxes that happen in this story. But it's telling us something. The writer is trying to make us see something. You can build, you can try, you can work really hard. But unless the Lord builds the house, unless he's doing it, unless he's at work in men's hearts, then you labor in vain. You're, you're just, you know, you're pushing the rock up the hill to let it roll down the other side. But if God is working, if God is at the center, if we're, if we're putting him first, if he's the one driving us, if he's the one calling us, if he's the one empowering us, if we're saying, God, I can't do this. I need your strength. I need your help. I look to you. And fundamentally, if it's not in Jesus, if it's not through his work, his life, his death, his motivation, his spirit inside us, then we're going nowhere. And it's empty. I mean, that's, I think, the point of the book. So I'm sorry I've ruined it for you. Okay, in the time I've got left, I, I hope that I've... Uh, if you had any doubts about the Old Testament or any doubts about uh, Nehemiah as a book, if you weren't excited about it, I hope that some of that stirred up. I wanted to tell you a story before, but I forgot about it. Um, my motivation for wanting to, to have that whole point, a guy once told me that he's a red-letter Christian. I don't know if you've got a Bible like me, uh, but Jesus' words are in red in my Bible. I really love it. It's really helpful. I can flick through and I instantly see the Gospels because they're red. Um, but he's a red-letter Christian, he told me, and that meant that what he believes is the words of Jesus are more important, they're more authoritative, they're more trustworthy than the rest of the Bible. And, and on the surface, that seemed to make sense to me because, well, I believe that Jesus is, is like the fullest representation of who God is. In him, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. So when Jesus speaks, surely that's more, you know, than Paul, right? wrong the bible it's the whole of it is authoritative all of it is god breathed we jesus's words that are recorded here by matthew mark luke and john they have the same weight 
as Hosea, as Malachi, as Nehemiah, as John's second and third epistle, as the book of Revelation. We need to be careful that we don't pick and choose what we want the Bible to say. I think ultimately that's what this guy was doing because he found Jesus' words easier to stomach than some of the stuff that he saw elsewhere. That's a really lazy um, way to view the Bible. And that's why we want to read the whole scripture next week. So we take it seriously. We want to see what it says, not what Alan or Josh think is irrelevant. What, what does the Bible really say? Because if it, if, it, if it really says what we think it says, then that really matters. If God's really said that and the things he said in there, then that's really powerful, really important. So the time we have left, I want to give a brief timeline of the Old Testament. I'm just going to bring us up to speed to the doorstep of Nehemiah so that when we get started next week, we, we see the picture, the setting has been, uh, it, it, you know, the, 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 all the acts. We're like act four of the play. I'm going to speed us through. It's a spark notes of acts one to three. So it starts with, oh, where are we in the Bible story? It starts with creation. Creation. Adam and Eve were created to be co-workers with God in the garden. God created the whole world in this amazing explosion of taste and sights and smells. And we went for a walk in the, in the woods yesterday and the different smells, just the smells alone, breathtaking. All of creation uh, God brought into being with a word. But then he wasn't satisfied. He creates humanity and he says, will you rule with me? Uh, the words that he says, I, I want you to um, multiply and to prosper and to have dominion, to have authority over creation, to, to, to work with me, to, to, to be more creative, to do more things. And humanity has done that to an extent. We, we are creative. In his image, humanity creates and uh, is in, in, ingenu ingenuity, intuitive building and coming up with all sorts of amazing things. Um, and God said to Adam and Eve that through you, I'm going to bless the land. Through you, and I'm going to raise you up and give you authority, and, and we're going to make something together. We're going to build something together, and it's going to be beautiful. But Adam and Eve fell. Humanity fell. They, they wanted to do things on their own terms. They liked the idea of ruling. They just didn't like the idea of doing it with God. They liked the idea of having authority. They just wanted to be the only guys on the steering wheel. And so they, they fell. And the story continues with humanity uh, doing its own thing. And uh, there was multiplication of people. And God picked out some people. We've got Abraham. We've got Isaac, Joseph. There's uh, God sort of saw people and their hearts and said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work alongside you and raised people up and said, I want you to have a relationship with me. And he made a covenant, an agreement with these people. I think the word covenant um, is so foundational to our understanding of who God is, because God is a God who makes covenants. Covenant is uh, an agreement. Today, we make agreements uh, we sign them. I think about uh, when we got married. Um, when you get married, you, you sign a piece of paper. It's like, till death do us part. I put my name on the line here, right? 
in those days, they kind of acted out. It was they, they didn't read and write, so they had to act out agreements. So there's all sorts of situations in which um, uh, people would say, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, uh, and they would get these animals and they'd chop them up and they'd put them on either side, so they'd walk through and say, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, let be done to me what happens here. They acted it out. I think it's a much more powerful way of, uh, of keeping agreements. Uh, if you are theatrical about it. But, um, but that's how we need to understand God and his covenant with his people because he said to them, I'll be your God and you be my people. And as part of our covenant agreement, I want you to set yourself apart from the people around you. I want you to eat certain things. I want you to live a certain way. I want you to worship only me. I want you to, uh, I want you to not worship anything else. It's bad for you to begin with. But I also, this is, this is how we're going to show that you're mine and I'm yours and I'll bless you and we'll work together. It'll be like the garden, It'll be like back in the garden when we work together hand in hand and we, we created together. Let's do that again, says God to his people. And they multiply and they grow and they get more and more until finally um, we have a godly nation and King David unites the people of Israel There'd been war, they'd been infighting, and he unites them. And he uh, plans this amazing temple and brings the, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, into the middle of the city. And it seems like it's going so well. It seems like it's uh, finally there. It's, we're back in the garden. We've got God in our midst. He's right in amongst us, and we're doing things for him. We're worshipping him alone. We're setting our lives apart for him. We're not having anything to do with those... Uh, idol worshippers who sacrifice their children to their gods. We're, we're living the life the way God asked us to. So much in the law, in the Torah, is about social, social justice. It's about every seven years you don't plow the field so the land has a time to regrow. This is like sustainable farming practices 4,000 years ago that we're only just figuring out today that we should have been doing this. Like right from the beginning, God was like, look after the land. Right from the beginning, God's like, look after each other. You know, if you've got someone working for you in your household, after seven years, let them leave. Like if like slaves, for example, and slavery was very different back then toward the image that we have, still not great. Um, but every seven years, let them go. If they want to stay, they can stay. They might love working in your household, being tutors to your children, for example. But if they want to go, let them go every seven years. Like, it, this was part of God's law, and they were doing it, not for very long. Solomon starts worshipping, he gets his many, many wives. Solomon uh, follows his heart, unfortunately, and uh, brings in wives from all of these different nations, follows his desires, abandons God's law. And uh, we have widespread idolatry. Pagan and religious practices are adopted by the Jewish people. Outside the temple, they raise up altars to other gods where they sacrifice their own children. And this happens, it's a bit of a cycle. Uh, I'm now skipping hundreds of years um, of biblical history where there's good kings and bad kings and good kings and bad kings. And a good king comes along and tears down all the altars and, and institutes this like reform of religion. And everyone comes back to the temple. They repent. They say, God, we're sorry for being idolatrous. We'll do it the right way. The next king comes along and says, ah, oh, but Baal, he was a great God. Let's just bring Baal back. 
you know? And it's like, it's like up and down, up and down, up and down. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And then uh, this is where Jeremiah comes in and other prophets that we have uh, who, who warn the Israelites. They warn the, the people. They say, if you carry on this way, if you carry on this, in this idolatry, it's interesting. Um, the image, the picture that's given is adultery. Actually, in Hosea, Malachi, Jeremiah, they all paint this picture. You're sleeping around with other gods. And the God of heaven, the only God, he's faithful to you. And he loves you. And he won't abandon you. But you need to stop what you're doing. Because if you don't, it's things, things are going to happen. There will be consequences, Jeremiah says. And uh, we can read what he says here in Jeremiah 25. Oh, there he is. That's a photo. Um, in Jeremiah 25, uh, 8 to 11, just in bold, he says, Because uh, thus says the Lord, because you've not obeyed my words, uh, behold, I will send all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. You've heard of Nebuchadnezzar. He's a famous name. Um, king of Babylon. Babylon was the, 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 the biggest bad. They were the worst group of people. Big, big kingdom uh, that just swept through. This whole land shall become ruin and waste. And these nations, so, uh, the nations, the Israelites, will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And that's what happened. 588 BC, the uh, Babylonian Empire came and destroyed Jerusalem, tore down the temple and took captive all of the uh, noble princes, the, the kind of the, all of the craftsmen, anyone that had like any good job, whisked them away. You're coming with us. We could use you in Babylon. Chained them up and, and, and walked them all the way to Babylon, leaving behind just like the poorest, the cripples, anyone who couldn't make the journey to, to just live off the rubble and the ruin. But there's hope. We've got these, oh, there it is. There's hope. These are four prophets and I can't remember, oh gosh. I think it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But Daniel's a dead giveaway because of that cheeky lion. Look at those shifty eyes. <laughs> He's up to no good, that lion. I absolutely love it. <laughs> There's hope. You see, God's faithful. These, this, has been, this has been years, hundreds of years of faithlessness, of idolatry, of spitting in God's face. God is faithful. For thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 29, I won't read it all, at the bottom, I will bring you back. I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place. There's this verse in the middle here that's like some, it's like people's life verse. Lots of people know it, don't they? For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Lots of us have that as our verse for us, but this, before it was 
our verse for us, it was the verse for the people who had really messed up. They had really rejected God. If, if God can say that about them, there's hope for us. What an amazing beacon of hope in the middle of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a dense book. It's a big book. The first half is like warning and prophecy against the Israelites. It's like, you, it's going to be bad, guys. It's going to be really bad. You really messed up and God's coming. Then the second half is all about Babylon. And he's like, God's angry with Babylon because what they did, although it was my will, they didn't. They were, it was bad. It was, it was evil. It was wrong. What they did, how they did it, the death, the destruction, the pain that they brought to my people, I'm going to exact vengeance on Babylon. But right there in the middle, is this little package of hope, this little portion, it's three chapters where God says, but I won't forget my people. I won't leave you there. I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. I'm going to bring you back. And I'm not just bringing you back to the same old, same old. I'm not just bringing you back to rebuild the temple. I'm not just going to bring you back so that you can carry on the way things were. Absolutely not. When I bring you back, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. No longer will they be teaching each other saying, you need to know the Lord for they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their sin. I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. God says, I'm going to do something new. I had an old covenant. Remember, I had an old covenant with uh, Israel. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And it'll look like this. You'll, you'll, you'll worship me in the temple like this. And this is how people will know that you're different from everyone else because you'll eat these things, you'll wear these things, you'll behave in this way. But now I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something different. And it's characterized, this new covenant is characterized by a change of heart. Isn't that the problem that they had? They just needed a new king and their hearts were away from God. All they needed was a new king and they would turn away from him. Just this cycle of, of, of idolatry, repentance, idolatry, repentance, idolatry. It was their heart was the problem. God says, I, I've got a plan to fix it. Ezekiel says this at the bottom in bold, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put in them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them hearts of flesh, hearts that beat that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They'll be my people, I will be their God. You see the theme running through the prophetic voices at, at, during this exile period is, I'm gonna change their heart. I'm gonna do something new. And I'm not just gonna do something new to them, I'm gonna do something new for them. I'm gonna bring someone, someone new is gonna come. He's, God's saying to his people, it's not just, you're not just going to come back and rebuild the temple, which you will do, but you're going to rebuild it and then I'm going to restore your hearts and I'm going to do it with my servant, my servant David. Ezekiel says this, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I'm going to set someone to rule, just like David. Do you remember the golden age? Do you remember how it was with him, how he built, he planned and built the temple? Well, Solomon built it really, but it was David's 
you know, do you remember how things were with him? It's going to be like that, but better. He's going to be a shepherd. He's going to take care of the flock. And then Daniel has this amazing vision. Uh, Nina actually brought from Revelation um, where that vision finds its kind of fulfillment in the book of Revelation. But in Daniel, and Daniel was away in Babylon when he was having these visions. He was one of the princes whisked away to Babylon. And in Babylon, God gives him these amazing visions. And, uh, and this one uh, is just this kind of powerful seed of hope for the Jewish people and for us. It says this, I saw, a night, I saw in the night visions and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, to God himself, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is called the prophetic package of hope, all of this thing. God's going to bring his people back. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to build Jerusalem and their hearts are going to be changed. There's going to be a king set up, a representative, the son of man, one like us, an example of humanity. is going to be exalted up high, given a throne, given authority, like a restoration of Eden. We're going to rule alongside God because one is going to come and sit on the throne. One like David. All tribes, all tongues, all nations. It's not just about my people, the Israelites, anymore. It's expanding. It's for the whole nations. We're going to draw all people in. And so that's when Nehemiah starts this prophetic package of hope. 60, 70 years after the, the fall of Jerusalem, Babylon gets its comeuppance. Just like Jeremiah said, Cyrus, prince of Persia, comes in and conquers Babylon. And then when he does so, he says, right, what are all these Jews doing here? Go home. Go back. Rebuild your temple. Restore your land. Worship your God. Off you go. And so we read at the beginning of Ezra, the book of Ezra, um, the first sentence, in the first year of King Cyrus, an edict went out, a, a command, a proclamation, good news went out. You can go back home. And it fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah. It's kind of like, um, oh, but we'll see in the story of Nehemiah because things are all set up, right? They do rebuild the temple. Spoilers. That happens in Ezra, though. So that's already rebuilt by the time we get to Nehemiah. And then Nehemiah, they rebuild the walls. Um, but I hope as you read through it, you, you'll see that some of what Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Daniel were saying, that doesn't seem to have happened. It's, like, it's kind of like a surprise party. This is an analogy that helped me. Have you ever been to a surprise party um, where you're... You've got the food, right? You've got the food all out on the tables and all the presents are packed and wrapped and ready and uh, the balloons are, are done and the house has been cleaned and it's lovely, but all the guests are in the cupboard waiting. It's not much of a party. Everyone's hiding behind the sofa. 
that bit's kind of exciting. It's kind of fun, but it's not the party. The party starts when the guest arrives. The party begins when, to break out of the analogy, when Jesus comes. You see, we're setting up for the Gospels. But it wouldn't make much sense if you didn't have the anticipation, if you didn't have the build-up, if you didn't have that prophetic package of hope to make sense of it all. Why is Nehemiah kind of disappointing at the end? Well, because Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah, Hezekiah, all of this prophetic hope, it's not come to pass. So, just to finish, uh, we are, of course, on the other side of that big moment. Jesus has arrived, the party's begun. Silly analogy in some ways, but not really because we now see uh, what they didn't. And we realise now, on this side of the Gospels, that things happened a little bit differently to how perhaps they thought it would. The story's a little bit different. Jesus was exalted, uh, but he was exalted up on a cross. He was crowned where he was crowned with a crown of thorns. They put a robe on him and coronated him and paraded him through the streets. It was very different to what was expected. But Jesus said, this is my glory. This is me and my glory. This is how I came to rule. This is how I've come to break the chains. This is how I've come to restore humanity to God. This is how I've, I'm gonna shepherd you. I'm gonna lead by example. I'm going to make the ultimate sacrifice. So there's no need for a temple anymore. The sacrifices have been done. That's what the temple was for, sacrifices. We don't need that anymore. Then the spirit of God now lives in us because of Jesus. We are temples now. Uh, but the building work isn't complete. Here in Gothenburg today, we're like little temples going out into the world. But there's still work to be done. So as we're reading through Nehemiah and seeing this picture and seeing this story, seeing how they're building, how they're trying, how they're, uh, they're, they're dealing with opposition, we can see, okay, we're on the other side of that prophetic package of hope. We've come to the other side of the gospel story, but there's still work to be done. I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're finished. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is, is powerful. Lord, that the, the words of the scriptures, Lord, are profitable, that they profit us, that they benefit us, even just reading them. Lord, especially just reading them. Lord, I pray would you impact us today. Lord, I thank you that your spirit lives in us because of the work, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I thank you that there's no longer any need for sacrifice, for ritual, for penance, for drumming up emotion. Lord God, by faith, we access all God's riches and we are co-workers with Christ in the mission here in Gothenburg because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We pray would you go before us this week and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.